And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Uh, If you just found out that you won $5 million in the Florida lottery, would you rejoice? I'm getting a few of these, so I'm thinking, yeah, it wouldn't hurt, right? Well, how about if you heard congratulations? You've just been used of God to move a soul from eternal darkness to eternal light and life. Now, that should make the believer rejoice like nothing else. That's what our, our, our who's your one is about. We've got a couple of green up there, meaning uh, that they have been, been praying for them and the gospel has been shared with them. Okay, so I just want to encourage you to keep praying for your one. Now, all too often when we hear about somebody coming to the Lord, somebody getting saved, as it were, we respond with, oh, uh, that's nice. Hey, who do you think is going to win the Super Bowl this year? Right? Uh, Whatever makes us the happiest reveals our values, our true values. Do we get more excited about a, a temporal blessing or an eternal one? Do we get more excited about a new car or a new brother or sister in Christ? Now, our text is unique in, it's the, in that it's the only time in the Bible where it said that Jesus greatly rejoiced or rejoiced greatly. The word rejoice alone, it's not strong enough um, in, in the Greek uh, to be translated that way. The Greek word means to exult, to be exuberant. Now, what he rejoiced greatly about was the news of how God's sovereign grace had resulted in salvation of souls through the ministry of the 70. Remember, he sent them out. Last week, he sent them out. And now they have come back giving a report. Well, God's sovereign grace and salvation brings great joy to Jesus. And it should bring great joy to us. Now, to understand what made Jesus exult and and what should make us exult, we need to grasp the meaning of God's sovereign grace. So first and foremost, God's sovereign grace means that salvation is totally from God and not at all from man. Scripture plainly shows that salvation from sin and from God's judgment is all from him and not at all from us lest we should boast. Now the Apostle Paul hammers his home in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 26 through 28. It's there that he emphasizes three times that God has chosen us and his choice did not depend on anything in us but only on him. Now his conclusion there is that no one should boast before God. He closes out that passage saying, but by his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now the Apostle John, he also makes it clear uh, that the new birth is not by any human effort on our part or human will. In John chapter 1 verses 12 and 3 he writes, But as many as received him, them, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now he's going to tell us about how they were born. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, born of God. James makes the same point in chapter 1 verse 18. He says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. Now, some will say that God initiates salvation, but then it depends on us, on our decision to believe. 
But if we just look at Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it shows us that both faith and repentance are the gifts of God. You know the verse, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that, 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 remember that word that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That word that, uh, that includes the whole salvation by grace through faith process. That whole process is a gift of God. Philippians 1.29 says that it has been granted unto us not only to suffer for his name, but to believe in him. It's been granted for us to believe. Acts 11.18 makes it clear that God grants repentance. So does 2 Timothy 2.25. Jesus is the one who said that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. That's John 6.65. Some try to dodge this by asserting that we are elect according to God's foreknowledge. Well, Peter uses this word foreknowledge in the beginning of his first letter. They say that it means that in his omniscience, God knew in advance who would believe in Jesus and that their faith is why they are now part of the elect. But that view would make man the one who determines God's eternal plan. But Paul, in the context of dealing with our election to salvation in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 1, he says that God, he declares that God works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, if our choosing God is the reason he elected us for salvation, then election would not be due to his, his grace, but due to our choice. Now, furthermore, a study of the Greek word uh, translated foreknowledge, it's prognosko in the Greek, it shows that it means more than God's merely knowing something in advance. That's, that's a bare-bones definition that really doesn't get to the heart of it. It refers to God's personal and determinative choice of an individual in Romans 8.29 or of a nation such as Israel in, in, in Romans chapter 11, verse 2. It means that God determined beforehand, before time began, to know these people in a special way, to pour out his love on them uh, according to his purpose. Now, uh, apart from God's knowing us, choosing us, and, and drawing us to salvation, we would be lost. Now, in our text, Jesus shows us uh, several things here, uh, subpoints. A, we are dependent on God to reveal himself to us. He says that no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Just think about that. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. And who the Father is except the Son. That's, that's not hard English, is it? Only Jesus knows God, the Father. Only the Father knows Jesus But then he adds, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Do you get that? Let me read straight through. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. And who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now there are four reasons why We are really dependent on God to reveal his salvation to us. Number one, we are dependent on God to reveal his salvation to us because our finite reason is incapable of knowing the infinite God. Now, philosophy begins with man and tries to reason to God, toward God, but the finite human mind cannot in and of itself grasp the infinite triune God. 
our minds would literally explode. <laughs> we don't have that capability. Jesus' statement here is a strong assertion of both his deity and his humanity. The fact that the, all things were handed over to him by the Father, that shows Jesus' humanity. And the fact that only Jesus can reveal the, Father, reveal the Father to us shows his deity. Because no mere man or any created being could reveal the eternal God to us. As God in human flesh, remember what he said to Jesus? This is John 14. I mean, what Jesus said to Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. But our problem is bigger than just the fact of our finiteness. Number two, we're dependent on God to reveal his salvation to us because we are spiritually blind by nature. Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Just as a blind man cannot see a beautiful sunset because he lacks the necessary organs to do so, well, even so a sinner who does not have the Holy Spirit cannot grasp the things of God. Now when Jesus gives eternal life to those that the Father has given him, as he talks about in John 17, he imparts to them the capacity both to understand spiritual things and also to know God personally in Christ. As Jesus prayed in, in, in John 17, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Without such spiritual life in Christ, we are no more capable of knowing God than a corpse is capable of seeing and knowing a living person. But being spiritually dead and blind, that's not our only problem either. Number three, we're dependent on God to reveal his salvation to us because we are under the domain and the power of Satan. When the 70 reported, they reported to Jesus how, the, or when they returned, they reported to Jesus how the demons were subject to his name. Now Jesus concurs by saying that he was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now he further underscores this by saying that he has given them authority to tread on serpents and scorpions without harm. Now in the context it's clear that Jesus was referring to the power that he gave them over Satan and the demons, not to some literal ability to handle snakes and scorpions. The disciples' success in the ministry was a symbol of the complete and final overthrow of Satan. The fact is it takes the defeat of Satan to save a soul. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It says, Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may, might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. When God saves us, he delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, we cannot free ourselves from that bondage to Satan. God has to do it for us. Well, number four, we're dependent on God to reveal his salvation to us because there is nothing in us that obligates God to reveal himself to us. Now, Jesus states that he reveals the Father to whomever he, the Son, wills. Also, God was well pleased to reveal his salvation to the babes rather than to the intellectuals. Now, the phrase well, well, uh, well pleased that points to God's sovereign pleasure according to his secret counsel. 
Clearly, Jesus' words would make no sense if he revealed the Father to everyone equally. As demonstrated throughout all of scripture, scripture, God chooses certain individuals and reveals himself to them, but he lets others continue in their spiritual darkness. He chose Abraham, but he didn't choose any of his brothers or his father or his neighbors. He chose Isaac, but he didn't choose Ishmael. He chose Jacob, but he didn't choose Esau. Now, concerning Jacob and Esau, Paul points out that God did, did this while they were still in their mother's womb, before they had done anything good or bad so that his purpose according to election might stand. Now, that's Romans 9, 11. Now, in case we miss the point, Paul strongly asserts, just a few verses later, verse 16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. In other words, salvation doesn't depend on human will or human effort. It depends totally on God's mercy and not at all on us. Now, to that verse there, Martin Luther, he comments, here the bottom falls out of all merit, all powers and abilities of reason, or the free will men dream of, and it all counts as nothing before God. Christ must do and must give everything, end quote. Now, if you fight against this doctrine, and we all do and have at some point, I would suggest that it's because you have too high view of man and too low a view of the holiness of of God. You have a too high view of man in that you think that God is somehow obligated to show mercy to everyone equally. That sounds more like due, something that's due to you rather than mercy. Scripture is clear that God is not obligated to show mercy to anyone. He could have treated us as he treated the fallen angels and left us in our condemnation without a savior. He had every right to do that. Is God unfair because he condemned all the fallen angels to the abyss without even giving them a chance of salvation? Well, of course not. They rebelled. They have no claim on the mercy of God. The same is true of us, rebellious, fallen men. In his holiness, God would be perfectly just to condemn the entire human race to hell but he chose to show mercy to some. And that is his prerogative. That's his right. Well, because of that, God was pleased in and through Jesus Christ to reveal his salvation, although he didn't have to, but he did, to his elect. This is what Jesus meant when he was um, kind of accosted by the Jews. They demanded, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Here's what Jesus was here is Jesus' response. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Now listen to this. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Notice it doesn't say if you believe, you become one of my sheep. It says the very reason you don't believe is because you are not one of my sheep. If you were one of my sheep, he goes on, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And I will give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. God's sovereign grace means that salvation is totally from God, and not at all from man. 
Well, the second major point, God's sovereign grace, it brings great joy to Jesus. Now, joy is a fairly frequent theme in the book of Luke, but this is the only time that we read of, joy, of Jesus rejoicing greatly. Clearly, what made him exult was the report of the 70 and the thoughts about the sovereignty of the grace of God in salvation. Well, there are at least four reasons that Jesus exulted in God's sovereign grace. A, Jesus exalted in God's sovereign grace because it glorifies the Father. Think about it. If man can glory in any part of his salvation, it robs the Lord of the total glory that is due him and him alone. But if salvation is due solely to God's choice and to God's power, then we can only boast in him. That's what Paul tells us to do, boast in the Lord. Well, be Jesus exalted in God's sovereign grace because it defeats the power of Satan. I can almost hear Jesus laughing when he, when he recites there verse 18. Now, why God allows Satan to have dominion over this fallen earth for as long as he does, no one really knows. Maybe one day when we see the big picture, we'll fully understand. But we do know that the day is coming when that deceiver will be thrown into the lake that burns with fire and brimstone where he will be tormented with his angels uh, forever and ever. Uh, every time a soul is saved from hell, it's, it's really just a little foretaste of God's final and complete victory over Satan. Y'all, excuse me, I gotta scratch my nose. I had surgery and this thing is just, it's healing now and it is just like, oh. Okay. Third, Jesus exalted in God's sovereign grace because it humbles the proud sinner. When Jesus says that God has hidden these things from the wise and in the intelligent and he has revealed them to babes, he doesn't mean that no wise or intelligent people will be saved, whereas who, those who lack intelligence will. In other words, if you're dumb, you can get saved. If you're smart, you can't. No. The contrast is between those who proudly trust in their own reason and intellect versus those who humbly bow before God's revealed wisdom in Christ. The proud man thinks that he can approach God in his own way, on his own terms, and through his own merits. That's what all religion is, except Christianity. Christianity is the only religion that is devoid of meritorious earnings. Do you understand that? All other religion is how you can get back to God, about what you can do to get to God. That's what religion is. Christianity is what God has done to bring you to himself. Okay, it's what he's done in Jesus Christ. Well, Paul explains that God will destroy the wisdom of the wise through the power of the message of the cross. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 1. This is verse 21. For since in, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. So the world has wisdom, but that wisdom does not lead to God. It says, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached. <laughs> He's talking about the gospel. And he calls it foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. That's the power of the gospel. In its wisdom, the world says the gospel is foolishness. And, and, and Paul says, this is the very foolish message that God has chosen to save anyone who believes. Now, obviously, Paul was an intelligent, well-educated man. 
But as he says, all those things that were gained to him, he counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Scripture is quite clear that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The humble person is the one who comes to Jesus as a needy Savior, trusting totally in God's mercy and not at all in anything in himself. Well, D, Jesus exalted in God's sovereign grace because it promotes holiness in the elect. It's rightly been said that pride is the mother of all vices and humility is the mother of all virtue. Those who know the greatness of God's holiness, those who know his glory uh, and his saving grace in Christ, they will constantly judge their pride and rely on him for everything that is needed to live a life of holiness. Now, for all those reasons and more, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit when he thought about God's sovereign grace in salvation. salvation. And perhaps you're thinking, well, I can accept the doctrine of the sovereign grace in salvation, but I can't greatly rejoice in it. Well, if so, that's okay. It simply reveals an area where you are not yet conformed to the image of God's Son. Jesus exalted in this truth. Guess what? We should too. That's the third major point. God's sovereign grace should bring great joy to us. It should bring great joy to us for the same reasons that it brought joy to Jesus. Namely, it, it glorifies the Father, it defeats the power of Satan, it humbles the proud sinner, and it promotes holiness in the elect. But also, we need to look at some other things. God's sovereign grace in saving us should bring greater joy to us than our service. Now, this is a gentle correction that Jesus does here to the 70 in verse 20. They're excited about how God used them uh, in defeating Satan's forces through their ministry. I would say that was something to get excited about. And Jesus is not telling them to not rejoice at all in such victories. Rather, he's kind of putting it in perspective. Our greatest joy should not be in seeing how God uses us to serve him, but rather in the simple fact that our names are recorded in heaven. Here they were out healing indiscriminately, anybody and everybody, casting out demons. And they come back all excited and says, yeah, that's okay, but what you really need to rejoice in is the fact that your names are recorded in heaven. Service, it has its ups and its downs. How many, have ever, how many of you have served long enough to, to know that service has its ups and downs? Yeah, anybody with any snow on top, their hands shoot straight up, right? It has its ups and downs, but <sighs> salvation through God's grace and the assurance that whom he saves, he keeps, man, that should bring us a constant stream of joy. Well, B, God's sovereign grace should bring greater joy to us than all other joys because it is eternal. Do you understand that every joy that the person outside of Christ enjoys is temporal or temporary? It's not going to last. Did he just win a million dollars in the lottery? Did he just get a promotion in his career? Did he just marry a beautiful young woman? Did he just get elected to a high public office? Don't envy him for a second. Why envy a man who in a short time will be cast into the lake of fire? If he can only see as God sees, 
That successful man would gladly and quickly trade places with the person whose name is written in the book of life, even if that saint is suffering from terminal cancer. Their big picture is much better than his small picture. Our joy is eternal, and it's only going to grow greater when we pass into the direct presence of our Savior. We'll see God's sovereign grace in saving us should, be, should bring greater joy to us than any Old Testament saint ever had. Now certainly all the saints before Christ, they were saved, and they looked forward to being with God throughout eternity. But as the writer to the Hebrews states, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Peter tells us that angels actually long to look into the salvation that comes to us by grace. The angels, and, and there we're talking about not the demons who have fallen, but these are the confirmed angels in holiness. They don't understand grace. Why? They never sinned. They're sinless. They, they don't need grace. They don't understand grace, and they long to look into this salvation that we have <clears throat> concerning the grace of God. Because of this great salvation, Peter says that we, should, that we who believe should greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now some are robbed of joy when they think of God's sovereign grace because they take the doctrine to conclusions that may seem logical, but they are not biblical. For example, some say, if God has sovereignly determined everything, why pray? What will be, will be. But Jesus commands us to pray to the Lord of the harvest, right? To send out other uh, workers into the field. Uh, clearly, Jesus knew all things that would come to pass, yet he prayed often. Guess what? So should we. Others wrongly conclude if God is sovereign in saving people, why evangelize? But again, the Lord sent these workers out to do what? To proclaim the kingdom of God. Paul said that he endured all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus. When Paul was tempted to leave Corinth because of the threat of persecution, the Lord told him to go on preaching and promised to protect him. And then the Lord added, for I have many people in this city. You see, because God had his elect in Corinth who had not yet been saved, Paul needed to keep preaching. So God tells him, hey, keep preaching. I'm going to protect you. Don't worry about it. Early in Paul's ministry, uh, he, when the Jews stubbornly rejected the gospel and, and opposed Paul directly, he turned to the Gentiles. Acts 13, 48 says, And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. God's sovereign grace in electing some to salvation, it should motivate us to evangelism since we know that our efforts will be used by God to save his elect. Remember the foolishness of the message preached? You don't have to worry about what comes out of your mouth. It's either, going to, it's either God ordained to bring about eternal life or it's foolishness. And that's not our call. That's God's call. The book of Revelation assures this, us that Christ has purchased with his blood men from every uh, tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, perhaps someone is sitting here this morning and, and you're thinking, well, I'm not sure that my name is written in the book of life. I'm not sure that I'm one of the elect. What do I do? How can I be saved? Well, the answer in Scripture is plain. Come in faith to Jesus 
and he'll save you. Don't worry about understanding the eternal decrees of God. He's calling you today. Respond to Christ's invitation. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And him who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. You come to him today by faith. His promise for you is, come to Jesus and he will give rest to your soul. You will know this great joy that Jesus had when he thought about God's sovereign grace in salvation. And you can experience that this morning if you haven't. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again just for this passage that, that, that shows us your sovereignty. Father, uh, God, I, I pray that you would help us in understanding that and embracing that uh, to, 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 to understand what it means. And Father, to be motivated to share the good news because it is that good news, even though to the world, to some, it appears as foolishness. That is the message that you have chosen to save those who believe. So God, help us to trust you it's not about us. It really is about you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just going to have a real quick invitation and close in a song here, give you a chance to respond. Okay? Um, you're looking out here. This, I will tell you, this is, uh, Travis said it, but this is, this is just a blessing uh, to look out and see people. Okay? Um, add on, I usually don't get nervous or worked up about a service or whatever you know but you add on to it the extra technical level of the live stream cast and you have a computer crash and all of a sudden uh, you realize yeah God's the one in control we can we can we can do all that we can but it really is up to him and and, and everybody here this morning uh, is, is part of our family you know, so I, I'm just going to say to you, if you realize this morning that, yeah, maybe you, you've, all of you have been coming to this church for, for a while, right? Uh, if you realize that you don't know Jesus, boy, come talk to me about it. I trust that you do. But if you don't, don't run from it. Run to it. Come talk to me. If you're a believer this morning, I hope that you will just take a little bit of um, comfort in the fact uh, God, uh, 47 times in the New Testament, we find the word elect, okay? Jesus used it over and over again. Take comfort in the fact that you're chosen by God. Oh my. And because of that, as a result of that, he, um, I wanted to say encourages, urges, no, he commands us <laughs> to tell others about him as well. All right, that's part of, that's, that's, you know, the nuts and bolts of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples, right, to all the nations. So I hope that you're doing that wherever you're at, even, even if you're sheltering at home, right? That, that's been the par for the past eight or nine weeks. Things are loosening up. We're starting to move about a little bit more. All right, it's a good opportunity. You've got friends who don't know the Lord. You've got family that doesn't know the Lord. They need to hear about him. We can't be responsible for the results. We are responsible for letting them hear about it, letting them know about it. And it's, the, it's this foolish message, Paul calls it. It's foolish in the eyes of the world, but it is powerful in the hands of God. That's what we trust in. And I see some folks in here that don't belong to our church. If you want to join our church, you can just come up. You've got to stay six feet away, but we'll, we'll let you in. Okay? We'll do all that. 
It's new times, y'all. It's just strange, I'm telling you. Listen, you guys stand. If God is, is, is speaking to you, you come forward, share it with me. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.